Hello and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features Richard A. Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, presenting his paper, The Role of Guidance in Modern Administrative Procedure. The discussant is David Freeman Engstrom of Stanford University, and was recorded on March 5th, 2015. It's nice to be here and to talk, and I think it's really been a kind of reasonably sustained and complete discussion about the ways in which the evolution of American constitutional law has taken place. And what I did was I thought I was going to talk about a relatively restrictive problem, which turns out to basically involve virtually every aspect of American modern constitutional law. And just to put the point in perspective, uh, the phrase guidance appears nowhere in the Administrative Procedure Act as a way in which we start to do business. And it turns out that the use of the term and of the practice in self-conscious way really dates only to the 1990s and to the Clinton administration. Um, Since that time, it has mushroomed, and today, essentially, virtually all serious work that is done by the United States government through its administrative agency usually takes the form of a guidance, and oftentimes it begins with the very affectionate labor, dear colleague, and colleague basically is a synonym of government for enemy of the people, uh, talking about the various folks who are going to be subject to the regulations in question. And it turns out that there is very little process, if any, that goes into the guidance. And then the question is, what can be done about them? And the answer is, it turns out they are largely outside the scope of the law, at least until there is an explicit enforcement phase of going on. So why is it that the system actually evolves in the fashion so as to create that? And then what are the dangers and the benefits associated with the guidance system? Well, I think in order to understand this kind of problem, one has to start going back to sort of figuring out the history and the origin of administrative law. Uh, The thing that one first has to remember is that administrative law is not a creature exclusively of the New Deal. Um, In fact, some of the great struggles of the 19th century, most notably with respect to the public enforcement of the Interstate Commerce Act in 1887, were in fact the first real challenges at a grand federal level of administrative law. Uh, Rate regulation proceedings at the state took place at exactly the same time with the exact same challenges. But even that misstates the issues because the issuances of licenses and permits and reviews of one sort or another has been an inescapable portion of administrative law ever since we've had law itself. There are certain kinds of harms that are broadly diffuse that do not render themselves to private rights of action that require coordinated forms of behavior. And it turns out that unless you're a devout anarchist, Uh, you realize that private rights of action will not do it for the enforcement side and that private voluntary contracts will not do it for getting things done. So you need to have some degree of a coercive administrative state in order to handle these problems. 
The early administrative states, however, tended for the most part to be concerned by and large with what you might want to call common law offenses of one form or another. And so to take the first of the great administrative law decisions uh, from 1535, a case which goes under the provocative title anonymous, uh, one tried to figure out what the interaction was uh, between the administrative state on the one hand and the tort law on the other when it turned out that somebody blocked a public road with a private vehicle. And the answer to those particular cases was as follows. If you ran into the vehicle, you were now entitled to a private right of actions under the tort theory because the harm to you was large and discreet. And it turned out that the uh, cost of enforcement were relatively small compared to the benefits or the amount that was in dispute in the parties. But if you were one of 100 people who was backed up and delayed on the highway, you did not have an individual right of action. This would leave a serious gap in the deterrent function because these things turn out to be um, essentially you know, serious harms. And so the English Court of 1535 said that with respect to general damages, a court leet would then impose a fine on the individuals who engaged in these things, which would be the deterrent, and there would be another administrative action that would actually correct or remove the kind of obstacle with respect to the road in question. You could carry that system code with respect to pollution of public waters and so forth, using licenses to keep people off the highways who present various kinds of dangers. And it turns out that you always have some uh, discretion in these kinds of system. If your name is governor, whichever it was, I guess it was the one before Quinn, you know, you start taking bribes with respect to licenses and people get killed on public highways, you should be able to go to jail for that. But the basic notion was that you had relatively confined kinds of statutes in terms of the issues for which they are dealing. As you start to move forward, it turns out that the system of uh, regulation becomes more ambitious. Uh, the rate regulation cases were extremely difficult to deal with, and we developed a fairly large and comprehensive administrative law to handle it. But essentially, we were pinioned between two things, and so we knew what we were trying to do. Uh, the first of the things that we were trying to do is to limit to some degree the creation and use of monopoly power, not the creation as much as the use. And the second thing we were trying to do was to avoid confiscation uh, through the device of regulation. And if you chase down the decisions that were made between 1880 on the one hand and, say, 1930 on the other, what you come away with is that these naifs with respect to the way in which the state was organized managed to do a stunningly good job in figuring out how it is that you managed to put this system together. And several years ago, I had the occasion to read the full run of these cases. And basically, they were more sophisticated than modern judges are on this exact same question. When you come to the New Deal, however, what happens is the aspirations that take place within the state now have a very different situation. You're not trying to run the rules of the road. You're not trying to regulate monopolies of one form or another. What you're trying to do is to create a whole set of systems which will either create monopolies, think of the National Labor Relations Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, or all sorts of very extensive transfer programs of one kind or another. And at this particular point, the substantive law no longer mirrors the private law that you had. It tends to take on rather different forms. In many cases, what you're trying to do is to actually try to replicate in private firms and private businesses something that looks like a democratic institution. That's the labor relations statute with its elections. And many people don't know, but Wicked and Filburn, which is sort of ushered in the huge Commerce Clause was actually another disputed election case, this election taking place under, in fact, the Agricultural Adjustment Acts of 1938. Once you decide that you're now going to be in the transfer game, 
and you're also going to be in the monopoly creation game, the degree of discretion that necessarily starts to take place inside the government is going to be far larger than it would be under the kind of common law systems where basically public enforcement of the law was designed to supplement and to enforce uh, the particular injunctions that private lawyers had long understood. And so you then have this situation, and it's not a coincidence that the first of the great books that takes place with respect to administrative law is, in fact, a book by James Landis written in 1938, which was one year after the huge 1937 constitutional revolution. And he's trying to figure out the question, now that we've got all these massive powers at the federal level, what, pray tell, should we do when it comes to their implementation when we know that we're committed big time into the administrative state? And for people who've gone through the history in the 1930s, it was very clear that, particularly with respect to the National Labor Relations Board, Board, lesser extent with the Agricultural Board, there were genuine seismic conflicts as to how these things ought to operate, what they ought to do, and so forth. And Landis, I think, quite rightly realized at the time that if you're going to play this sort of game, uh, the judicial role is going to have to be limited, and you're going to have to worry about the articulation of various kinds of rules and so forth. And he was worried about the way in which you either define, exercise, or cabin in discretion in a situation where the objectives that government have are much more comprehensive and broader than they've ever been before. And so what does he do? He advocates an administrative state, which is then accurately reflected, I think, in the uh, text of the Administrative Procedure Act, which comes in at the end of the Second World War. And the Landis view at this particular point is that these agencies have some degree of expertise with respect to the factual issues that are in front of them, so they should be given a reasonably wide berth as to what they find on these things. But on questions of law, they have no comparative advantage over courts. And so there they should be subject to the nearest kinds of constraints. If you want to think of a crude but reasonably accurate approximation, you sort of think of the administrative agency as though it's something like a district or a trial court. And you then think of the courts as having appellate review functions over the way in which they ought to go. And so in the 1946, when the Administrative Procedure Act is in fact passed, you can see exactly both of these things being illustrated. The first point is they say, you know, uh, you got some discretion, but we've given too far, so you have to have some degree of substantial evidence. And instead of having complete discretion, they kind of get the level of review up to what it would be with respect to the kind of ordinary civil litigation. And then in Section 706, they're very clear that what's going to happen in this particular case is that all questions of law can ultimately be decided by a court without having to defer to anybody else. Now, there is the further question about how you proceed when you try to generate these rules, um, because the generation function will turn out the output, which is going to be subject to this system of examination. And the basic commitment that these characters made uh, was to essentially a three-tier system. And it's important to understand what the tiers are and to see what happens to it. The first of these tiers is what you might wish to call formal adjudication. And what this means is that before the agency, you run a regular kind of trial. But instead of having two parties to cross-examine witnesses, you have 50 or 60 or 100. And if each of them have the standard rights of individual hearing, cross-examination, and so forth, the whole process will collapse. So unless and until these things are explicitly required by statute, as they often are with public utility rate-making hearings, it turns out that formal adjudication is essentially something which everybody has abandoned because it leads to perpetual adjudication and total paralysis. So what happens is the next 
next feature of this particular case that comes in is called notice and comment hearing. And what it means is exactly what it says. We'll give you some kind of general notice of what's going on, and you start to give us some comments as to what you think. That's going to be the input side. Then we'll put out a kind of a rule, and it will be subject to the examination that we had before. Uh, to anybody who reads the text of the APA, the notice could be general, it could be concise. It's pretty much like the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Just give us some idea of what you're talking about, and then if you have any questions, figure it out, and you can ask us this, that, or the other thing. And so the process was supposed to be relatively light-handed with respect to questions of fact and with de novo review with respect to questions of law. It's already been mentioned that we had it in the 1970s, just to jump ahead, the huge battle over nuclear power inside the United States. And we had four extremely intelligent, highly articulate, and thoroughly perverse judges on the District of Columbia Court of Appeal. I see Chris Smiles, because I think he agrees with the assessment, McGowan, um, Levinson, Bazelon, right? And I, well, there was one other I'm trying to refer to. Uh, Skelly Wright, Skelly Wright. You, what? You, you, he clerked for Skelly Wright and Bill Brennan, and I was still willing to talk to him. I should tell you, by the way, I was in Justice Brennan's table chambers talking to Michael the day that Reagan won the re-election in 1980. I don't know if you remember that. And it was like being in Ward Hill politics back in New Jersey in 1980 because the justice was utterly beside himself. And this guy sat there smiling like the cat that swallowed the canary and didn't say a word the whole time. I don't know if you remember that particular day. Do. And I, I, basically, I see you still smiling. Yeah, well, I, I won the pool among law clerks. Oh, that I didn't for know. For betting, betting on the result. So he bet on the result, <laughs> but there was more at stake than the $2 in the pool, I could assure you. So, I mean, you start having these kinds of procedures, and what happens is these guys now really believe that it's important that they start to bulk everything up. And, and so, with a series of astonishing forms of linguistic virtuosity, what they do is they take every stage of this process what it means to give adequate notice of what's going on, what procedures you have inside the agency, what's the form of the order that's going to be issued. And it turns out that you develop essentially the most ornate and complex version of oversight that you could possibly imagine. And to some extent, this stuff is driven by rule of law concerns. The argument being is unless we know everything about what went on with what you did, we can't make any judgment about whether it's good or bad. I actually think that that's quite wrong. I think that the rule is we look at the output and we look at the statutes that are authorizing it. The process is your concern. It's the performance that's our concern. And the idea that you want to go to the input side of this thing instead of the output side of the thing is, in fact, a huge and conscious debate and a mistake. So what they do is they do this kind of thing. They kill the nuclear power industry. For those of you who are curious about it, we've not had a new plant start in the United States since 1977. And the only plants that we have now are so decrepit that they ought to be shut down in some way. And it's attributed to these geniuses who are running the system. Now, this is, of course, fine if you want to stop nuclear power. But as time starts to move on, uh, the incentive of agencies in a large number of areas is exactly the opposite. They want to get things done. They don't want to kill them. And so what happens is if you take all of these programs that you would like to see implemented through environmental regulation or something and run them through notice and comment hearings of the sort that takes place um, in the District of Columbia Circuit, nothing's ever going to get done. There is the Vermont Yankee case in which Justice Rehnquist 
at that time justice, in extremely harsh terms, condemns the D.C. Circuit Court, but he only does it with respect to additional procedures and not with rulemaking on the one hand insofar as notice and orders are going. And the District of Columbia Circuit Court, liberal and conservative, is still pretty much in the same mode as it was before. So now these purposive agencies say, well, what can we do? Well, there's a third category of things known as an interpretative rule. That's their word, not my word. And what is it that you mean by that? And essentially, the original meaning of this particular thing probably was something, well, here's this phrase. We don't quite know what it means. We're going to tell you how to understand it. And you'd think of an interpretive rule as a kind of a how-to manual. Uh, most trade associations, for example, when they see a new rule coming out, what they do is they interpret the rule for their membership by telling them what they have to do on this day, that day and the other day. And the theory about an interpretive rule is it's not supposed to move the ball or the needle in one direction or the other. Its major function under the circumstances is simply to create greater clarity in the way in which the particular system should argue. And of course, that's perfectly consistent with the basic notion that Landis was trying to put together. But now you start to see that what's going on is you try to squeeze more and more into the interpretive rules. Because if you can do that, you don't need to go through notice and comment hearing. And you can start to run this procedure essentially as an autonomous agency. You don't use the term after a while about interpretative rules because what happens is the term guidance starts to take over. And it's a conscious effort to sort of get you out of the three categories, I think, that are located under the statute. And the idea of a guidance is, look, you're entitled to know what's going on under these particular circumstances. We have to figure out how to instruct various peoples inside of our staff as to what to do. And so you ought to look at this thing as an information providing operation in terms of the way in which government should operate. And the reason why this topic turns out to be so difficult is that this statement is in fact true in a very large number of cases. Uh, there is no doubt that if you start talking about what agencies do, you get a large number of guys out there saying, you know, we can live with A or B. What we can't live is with the uncertainty is it either A or B. You're telling us A will do it. You're telling us B will do it. And thank you for the clarification at hand. Now, it's also clear if that is the mode of situation, there is going to be nobody whatsoever who is going to be inclined to basically challenge judicially something which they think is of positive benefit to themselves. So there's huge amounts of guidances or interpretations or whatever you wish to call them, which essentially pass under the radar. Uh, but what happens is it turns out that the guidance that you could use for clarification, in fact, can be used for other purposes, mainly to extend the scope of the particular governing statute beyond its original area. And at this particular point, now the situation is rather different. Because A turns out to be something small that you could live with. A turns out to be something big that you can't live with. And if, in fact, you have the same degree of benevolence towards the A and the bad B as you have towards the A and the good B, then there are going to be people who find themselves in very difficult circumstances. So what happens is folks now start to say, I can't live with the B alternative. Uh, I have to find a way to challenge this. And so just to take sort of one issue which has constantly come up, you know, what is the scope of the Army Corps of Engineers to regulate, for example, a new construction uh, dealing with the navigable waters of the United States? And if it's just a matter of simple interpretation as to whether it means a river or whether it means the uplands within a thousand miles of the river, um, you know, this is a big deal for anybody who wants to build who's not exactly on the river. And so what do you do? 
And if you see the guidance, you look at it, it says it's non-enforceable, it's only binding people. And what happens is you say, well, what does it mean to say that it's non-enforceable if we think there's a high probability that having issued the thing on Monday, a week later, on another Monday, you're going to enforce it. So what people then tried to do is to figure out how it is that they could get themselves into court to get some degree of clarification with respect to the issue. And at this particular point, what it does is it ties in very closely and very intimately with the standing doctrines which have developed in the history of the United States, which I regard for the most part as a public menace to the rule of law in the following way. And let me just briefly explain what the problem is with the doctrine. Uh, I see I.J. smiling because I.J. has standing in every case, right? And, you know, so, you know, the activist organizations, they want to do it. The problem is very simple. If you read the constitutional text, it says that the judicial power of the United States shall extend to all cases in law and equity concerning the following thing. And then it lists you the heads of cases that's there. Uh, shall extend to all cases in law and equity seems to me to be inclusive language. But it's important that you understand that law and equity are not just technical terms, but they have a very discrete history in terms of the way in which courts have generally functioned. An action at law typically involves a single person hitting another single person. And standing in that particular case is generally for the person who has been hit. There are also things known as relational interests, so it may well be that the surviving spouse of a person who is killed in an accident has standing for a tort of interference with advantageous relationship and so forth. But it's also equally clear that all of his 47 friends who came to grieve at the funeral cannot sue even though their lives have been diminished by his loss. And so what we do is we kind of cut off the kinds of people who can sue. And we say only those with large and discrete interests are the one who are entitled to maintain a private right of action. If you think back a second, you will realize that this is basically, in modern constitutional term, a recreation of the notion about special and general damages that one talked about in that 1535 case. It's the big guy only who can start to deal with this. Courts of equity have a very different function, at least in some cases. They are designed to deal with governance mechanisms, bankruptcy, charitable organizations, corporations, partnerships, and so forth. And the great challenge in those situations is one in which the offices of a particular voluntary organization go beyond the scope of their powers. Modern corporations tend to draft their powers in very, bad, very broad form so they could switch businesses. Traditional corporations were much more narrowly focused because they were worried about abuse. And there was a doctrine known as ultra-virus beyond the power of the particular organization. And it was widely understood that any shareholder of a corporation could sue to enjoin the operation of the corporation if they thought it was ultra-virus. And other people could join in the fray one way or another to get this issue resolved in a clear fashion. And the theory was, unless you had at least some shareholder to do this, there would be no constraint whatsoever. So far from having a situation where you're talking about discrete interest, uh, the courts in equity had a powerful jurisdiction in those cases where there was a structural infirmity and one of the persons in that organization wished to come in. This doctrine was then extended to cover various kinds of public organizations, states and municipal governments, so that any shareholder or citizen could sue to enjoin ultra-virus activities. But in Frothingham and Mellon and Frothingham against Massachusetts decided in 1973, 1923, Justice Sutherland said, nobody has standing unless the pocketbook interest is there. And so the whole equitable side of this thing essentially started to disappear. Which means, in effect, that if you now bring that forward with respect to what's going on, somebody who wants to say, look, 
the problem that you have with this off choice of rules under interpretation of bad B, nobody is now entitled as an abstract matter in order to challenge this under the notion that you're going beyond the powers. In addition, when you start to try to challenge it, well, you know, I'm in the line of fire, the answer which is commonly given by the government is until the enforcement action begins, the case is premature, it's not ripe, it's not fixed up, so that nobody else can challenge it either. And what then happens under these cases is that the interim effect of these aggressive regulations tends to pass and become effective um, without any judicial way to challenge it. People will not go to court. If it turns out when they win, you know, they save themselves a few dollars. If they lose, they find that there's a suspension of all their federal grant money or there's a big prison term sitting on the opposite end of the case. So what you do is you have a situation where the want of anticipatory relief means that you have no particular way to fight the guidances when they become essentially tools for political aggression. And in the paper, I give a whole number of examples of how this thing is done. The most recent one of the guidances, for example, involving Harvard Law School, which eventually caved, um, is they started to tell you about the kinds of procedures that you have to put into place in sexual harassment. And of course, since this is the United States government, every elementary guidance and protection of the due process clause is systematically excluded in these very serious kinds of cases. So that you get such things as, well, the witness is not entitled to run a cross-examination of somebody who accuses him of rape or her of sexual harassment and so forth. What you really ought to do is to send some questions to a judge who's appointed by the university. It can call through them and decide which ones to ask and which ones not. And so in effect what happens is the ability to mount the defense is really terrible. I've actually advised a couple of circumstances people in these things and the Soviet kangaroo courts have absolutely nothing on the way in which these procedures run inside universities. They are simply disgraceful and scandalous. Sometimes they're voluntarily adopted by the universities, but there's this constant threat of the loss of federal funds if you don't do it. And sure enough, if you look at the deal with Harvard, they managed to get a few niggling concessions out of the central government, but the loss of all of your grants for your science programs was thought to be a rather high price to pay to have some sensible rules on uh, sexual harassment. So a strong letter written by liberal and conservative members of the Harvard faculty alike, about 23 or 28 of them, I think it was, all of a sudden they lose. And so the basic argument is that in this particular case, you're not going to get rid of guidances, um, whatever you call them. The larger administrative scapes has so many activities that you have to deal with. But what you have to do is to allow a procedure where you can test them before the enforcement stage takes place. And that could either be a generalized challenge by anybody and then all other people join into it, or if it's a dear colleague letter that you receive, you can go into court and just say, look, this is not the way in which we want to do it. And if you start looking at what is required under some of these things, they're really quite extensive. Uh, for example, basically you're now required under guidances that are given with respect to disparate impact in Title IX cases to entirely rework your system of discipline if it turns out that there are more black students who are disciplined relative to white students, even if it turns out that there's no difference in process processes and the likelihood of guilt for a black person is identical to that of a white person. These are very costly to comply with. They're quite destructive in many particular ways. Somebody should be able to start to deal with this. So what really happens is that the administrative state in its modern form has taken the following cycle. 
First, it tries to give you all sorts of protections by having endless procedures. Then when the price comes too high and now all of a sudden the good guys, i.e. the judges, like the enforcement instead of disliking it, what they do is they expand this notion of interpretative rule or the notion of guidance so that there's absolutely no judicial sanction, no judicial review, no challenge of anything. And so what you can do is you could get settlements. This ties in, of course, very closely with two other things that we've heard today. One of them is the deferred prosecution agreements, which involve very similar kinds of activities, where you're so afraid of trying to fight this stuff because of collateral consequences uh, that you don't want to do it. And it also deals with the question of selective waivers that you can start to have. I think there is, in fact, a genuine crisis which exists now with the way in which we handle discretion. I send it back to the beginning, to the set of ambitions that we have is much greater than any sane state should have. This is not a talk which is trying to say, well, let's repeal the New Deal. That's a different paper, which I'm quite happy to give, uh, but not now. But it is a talk to say that if you're going to gear up and expand the overall powers of the state, then what you have to do is to bulk up the administrative protections that you give to individuals, and you cannot use narrow standing doctrines to essentially make sure that there's no structural or individuated challenge before the actual prosecution begins. Thank you. <laughs> so it's always such a, a, a thrill to engage with someone like Richard. He's uh, someone I've admired for a long time. I think he's one of the uh, I think he's one of the truly great first principles thinkers out there. He comes at a legal puzzle, and he. Um, By the way, they're uh, not leaving in protest. I, I assume not. Uh, he comes at a legal puzzle and, and he really kind of works it down to its bottom in, in, in a really compelling way. And I think this, this paper is a perfect example. Richard is parachuting into uh, perhaps the burning question in a minister of law, the question of how to treat uh, guidances. And it's burning not just because of DAPA, we've talked about that case a little bit, it's also burning because guidances are now pervasive within the administrative state, a point that Richard made uh, uh, as well. Um, the problem is drawn a parade of academic pro proposals, and it's also a uniquely slippery problem because it poses a really basic but really difficult puzzle. And the puzzle is as follows. Some guidance is really quite salutary. It allows an agency, in Richard's words, to telegraph its punches. So in that sense, it could be considered notice improving. Guidance is also uh, a tool for managerial control within an agency, and that can be a really good thing uh, as well. Uh, it also serves a coordination function within the executive branch more broadly. Okay? It keeps uh, uh, agencies, especially where there are multiple agencies with related policy bailiwicks on the same page. Maybe even puts the president on the page, uh, same page as to what uh, you know, his agencies are doing. So it could serve a kind of a left-hand, right-hand function uh, as well. On the other hand, the risk is that agency use of guidance might be tactical. Right? An agency might try to do informally through an interpretative rule what it might not be able to do without incurring significant political or actual costs that come with putting that rule through the more, more formal notice and comment process. So the doctrinal challenge is really uh, uh, straightforward the state, but actually a really knotty problem, which is how do you distinguish between good, notice-promoting guidances and bad tactical guidances? Or by extension, how do you structure incentives so that agencies are more apt to promulgate or at least put out uh, good guidances that we think of as notice improving as against these bad, more tactical guidances? So 
I teach a minister of law, and I, here's my plan for how I can try to add some value uh, to this uh, debate, and maybe hopefully tee up some, some good discussion. I'm going to do three things. Uh, as I, um, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do three things. First, first off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to situate Richard's proposal in the context of the doctrinal status quo, and also in the context of other academic proposals. And I think that's really important. I think that's going to help motivate the discussion. Uh, but I also want to show you just how sweeping Richard's proposal is as against what other people have said might be done in this space. That's the first thing I'll do. Uh, the other two things I'm going to do are more in the nature of a critique, uh, which is Richard, like a, a lot of people who've written in this space, I think have not spent enough time trying to develop a better sense of the shape of the problem. And I think uh, maybe Richard has some ideas on this. Maybe I'll pose some questions for Richard. But I don't think that there is, uh, uh, for instance, enough of a sense of what the actual mechanism is through which agencies could use guidance as a, as a tactical weapon. Okay, so I'll press Richard a little bit on that. And then finally, I want to sketch what I think the consequences would be if we actually adopted Richard's proposal. And I'll make the case that his approach might actually be worse than the current status quo. So I'll do them in that order, and then I'll let Richard tell me not only that I'm wrong, but perhaps disgracefully so. So here we go. Uh, what's the current status quo, right? So this is the first thing I want to do. I want to try to situate uh, uh, Richard's proposal. Um, in the context of, of, of other ideas. So the basic problem here is one that's quite general in administrative law, which is that the Supreme Court in Vermont Yankee basically said that courts can't add procedures beyond what are in the Administrative Procedure Act. Okay? They can't innovate in response to a, a problem like guidance, like increasing use of, of guidance documents. As a result, uh, courts have tried to shoehorn doctrinal solutions into what is in the APA. As a result, the, the, much of the doctrinal activity around guidances focuses on the part of the APA that exempts interpretative rules and policy statements from uh, the strictures of notice and comment rulemaking. The resulting doctrinal approaches then to try to decide what is interpretative, what is legislative uh, by way of a rule, uh, try to look at rules and try to divine something about their intrinsic nature by reference to their language, purpose, or effect. And there's some basic approaches there uh, that maybe you could already see. One thing is we might look at whether the, the, the piece of guidance, right, the rule at issue, uh, we might try to understand whether it creates new legal do duties as opposed to clarifying existing ones. Some people refer to this as a legal effect test. You could also try to look at the impact of the guidance. You might ask whether the guidance seems to be having an impact on say, the primary conduct of regulated parties. So that's certainly another way to do it. You can also try to ask whether the guidance is binding. Okay? Certainly plenty of courts have used that test, in particular binding on lower level agency personnel or binding on the agency itself. Right? If it is, then we would call it a legislative rule and require that it go through the notice and comment process. Few scholars find any of this satisfying. First off, these are wide open standards, and so the cases are all over the map. There's an incredible amount of uncertainty then as to what constitutes a legislative rule as against an interpretative rule. But more importantly, even where a court invalidates a rule as legislative, there's nothing to stop the agency from taking the exact same position it took in a subsequent enforcement proceeding. And so in a sense, agencies can put out guidance. They could be invalidated by the court, 
And it's not particularly costly for the agency. The agency can turn around in an enforcement proceeding and do the exact same thing. Finally, and maybe most important of all, there's always the question as whether parties can get pre-enforcement review at all under timing and reviewability doctrines such as finality and ripeness. And this is clearly Richard's concern, for instance, in the Office of Civil Rights case, the Texas version of the case, I think that's still at the district court level. But where um, uh, there was a, 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 a certainly a, an argument that this was a legislative rule that needed to go through notice and comment rulemaking, and yet the parties weren't able to get that review at all because it was determined not to be final or ripe. Doesn't satisfy anyone then, but, and, and as a result, uh, Legal scholars, Minister of Law scholars, have put out a bunch of different uh, alternative approaches uh, that maybe could try to improve on this situation by tweaking how courts review guidance and then also when review is available in the first place. And let me give you three examples of what other academics, other than Richard, have said might be done uh, uh, in order to try to mitigate some of the concerns we might have about use of guidance documents. So Jacob Gerson, Harvard Law School, he wants to simplify the legislative interpretive label by letting the procedures that are used dictate the rule's status. So he basically wants a very simplistic approach that if the rule has been put through notice and comment, then it's a binding legislative rule and it's entitled to all the benefits that come with binding legislative rules, including Chevron deference. If it hasn't been promulgated via notice and comment, then it's not entitled to Chevron deference uh, and, it's, and it's considered a, a, an interpretative rule. The result is a really simple incentive framework for agencies, right? As lots of people put it, the agency can decide to pay now in the form of public scrutiny by putting the rule through notice and comment rulemaking, or the agency can pay later by being subjected to judicial scrutiny without the benefit of Chevron deference for having not gone through notice and comment rulemaking. So that's one possibility, just set up a simple incentive framework that tries to channel as much as possible uh, what the agencies do so that they're more likely to use guidance in a good way and not in a bad way to make that decision as to whether they want to pay now via public scrutiny or pay later via judicial scrutiny. Other academics, Nina Mendelson at Michigan, she has focused on the reviewability concern, whether you can get pre-enforcement review. And in fact, she lays out a proposal that would allow stakeholders to petition for amendment or repeal of guidances, and then would do so through some kind of a fast-tracked process that would be bounded quite a bit uh, with, with deadlines uh, so that it wouldn't extend too long. This is obviously to control for concern about an ossified process. Others like Mark Seidenfeld, uh, another prominent voice in this area, well, he does something that actually is closest to what Richard wants. He wants to provide for automatic pre-enforcement review of guidances. Anyone could go into court anytime, virtually, to challenge the rule. But in his vision, the court could only do a very light touch kind of review of that rule. So something like very light touch, arbitrary, and capricious review of that rule. Those are three possible proposals, or three possible other ways of, of, of doing this. And I think by laying them out, maybe you can see then that Richard's proposal is actually kind of mixing and matching among some of the other proposals that are already out there. So for instance, Richard says guidances should get no deference on questions of law. Well, that looks like the Gerson approach in which you can pay now or pay later, right? Put it through notice and comment. And if you don't, right, you're not going to get any Chevron deference. You're not going to get any benefit of a legislative rule at the back end. 
Okay. Uh, similarly, Richard says guidance should get substantial deference on facts. Uh, note that this is actually an inversion of the usual ad law approach, but it's not so different from Seidenfeld. My sense is that uh, the agency gets substantial deference. That's roughly like light touch arbitrary and capricious review. So perhaps Richard is just tracking that proposal. The third important part of what Richard wants to do here is automatic pre-enforcement review. And here he's echoing Seidenfeld, maybe expanding that Mendelssohn approach where you can petition for review, but it's subject to a fast track uh, type process. Richard seems to be building that out a bit in the sense that anyone can get full-scale judicial review of a guidance uh, pre-enforcement. So hopefully that helps situate what Richard is proposing in the context of what others have, have said. And I hope that's useful because I really think the details matter here, right? If you're thinking about a way to, uh, to perform this really difficult optimization, right, trying to get these uh, agencies to uh, uh, to uh, uh, promulgate good forms of guidance, but steer clear of bad forms of guidance, then I think the doctrinal details are really gonna matter, and hopefully that, uh, that's a way that I can try to add some value here. So let me move to the other two things I wanted to do, and this is more by, in the nature of, of critique. But reading Richard's paper and dipping into the broader law review literature, suggests to me that we actually don't have a particularly good understanding of the shape of the problem of guidances. Part of that is just straightforward uh, uh, empirics. Okay? We lack some really basic descriptive understandings of guidances. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, we don't actually know how often guidances are general and how often they're quite specific. So no action letters as against something like a, a more general piece of guidance. Similarly, we have no sense empirically from a, a review of the literature whether guidances tend to, to uh, uh, impose affirmative mandates of one kind or another. So, for instance, the OCR letter, which seems to tell universities that they have to build certain features into their adjudicatory regimes regarding the student discipline. We don't know how many guidances look like that and how many guidances are actually, in fact, deregulatory. So lots of guidances take the form of safe harbors, okay? Uh, and so that strikes me as a, really, a potentially really important thing. We might worry that regulatory beneficiaries, for instance, would be least able to mobilize to counter uh, uh, deregulatory uh, uh, guidances. Uh, we don't know, though. We don't know whether guidances are more used in Republican administrations or Democratic administrations for pro-regulatory or actually deregulatory purposes. And that strikes me as something that should really matter if we're trying to think about how we're going to structure doctrine in this area. Second point here is that I think we, if we're going to try to understand the shape of the problem, we need a clearer theory of the mechanism through which an agency gains tactical advantage by using guidances. So the standard view here is that the agency uses guidance or issues a guidance because it knows that ventilation of the issue through, through notice and comment rulemaking would produce a different outcome. And it would produce a different outcome because stakeholders would produce political heat or during the notice and comment process, they would marshal knockdown arguments such that the rule could never survive judicial review. But I don't quite understand that as a, as a mechanism. For instance, why doesn't the guidance itself provide some kind of a focal point 
for stakeholders to pull fire alarms, therefore limiting the agency advantage uh, 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 that, that, that it would enjoy. Similarly, why can't regulated entities marshal those same knockdown arguments during subsequent enforcement proceedings? I think a partial answer to that latter question is maybe another mechanism uh, through which an agency enjoys a tactical advantage when it uses guidances. It knows it can cow PR-sensitive, public relations-sensitive industries. There's a classic line of timing of review cases that looks at, say, the pharmaceutical industry. And there we might think of, uh, we might think of the pharmaceutical industry as being one of these PR-sensitive industries. They can't be seen in the eyes of consumers to be violating laws. And as a result, courts are more willing to give pre-enforcement review to these PR-sensitive industries. But this surely doesn't describe all of industry. Right? Not all industry is PR sensitive. In fact, in the pair of cases in front of the Supreme Court, the contrast was between, say, the pharmaceutical industry and manufacturers of toilet goods. And so if that's true, and if the predominant mechanism through which agencies enjoy a tactical advantage is by, by exploiting the PR sensitivities of industry, then it strikes me that, that Richard's proposal is, is, is vastly over-inclusive. Seems like we should require at least some industries who aren't PR sensitive in that manner to simply level their challenges as part of a regular enforcement proceeding. That's preferred under administrative law. It's far easier to exercise judicial review in the context of an actual enforcement proceeding. Maybe the better approach then is a slight expansion of timing or reviewability doctrines to protect those PR-sensitive industries, to ensure that the pharmaceutical industry can get review, pre-enforcement review of a guidance that impacts it in some substantial way. But I'm not sure the answer is automatic across the board pre-enforcement review. And that's why I think that Richard could spend a little more time trying to uh, specify the mechanism through which he thinks agencies can use guidances in an inappropriate tactical way. All right, let me say the, the third piece now. This won't take but a, 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 a couple of minutes. So once we understand what some of the alternative proposals among legal academics look like, once we understand a little better the shape of the, the problem of guidances, I think we can begin to imagine what the world would look like if Richard's proposal were adopted. It's clearly a tough counterfactual question, right? Minister of Law is this Rube Goldberg contraption. But I think my best prediction as to what the world would look like if Richard's proposal were adopted, it's pretty stark and it makes a basic point that echoes throughout administrative law. And that is that well-meaning reforms can actually drive agencies into policy-making modes that are even worse than the status quo. So this may just be a classic case of the cure being worse than the disease. So here's my main prediction. Richard's proposal would make issuance of guidance on the part of agencies so costly that we're likely to see very little of it except for the most uncontroversial of policies. What's interesting here is that doesn't mean that agencies will then issue those rules using notice and comment procedures. 
Rather, it seems much more likely that agencies will simply begin to set most of their policy through enforcement actions. What will be the consequences of that? For starters, we'll probably have an overall deregulatory effect. It means that agencies can no longer relatively costlessly put out guidance. Rather, they'll actually have to bring enforcement actions, thereby expending at least some agency resources. But I think also what we're going to see in that world is there will be sudden enforcement broadsides everywhere. The agency can no longer telegraph its punches but rather actually has to bring a concrete enforcement action in order to make policy. Maybe there'll be these broadsides too because without guidance there won't be the managerial control over say line level prosecutors that would ensure some sort of consistency in the types of enforcement actions that were brought. The upshot then is that maybe notice isn't enhanced, it actually suffers when we raise the cost of issuing guidance documents. One last point. I predict that if Richard's proposal were adopted, it would have significant intra-industry distributive effects. What do I mean by that? If most agency policymaking gets pushed into enforcement actions, and if agencies beg off issuing guidance at all, it seems likely that the regulated entities with privileged access to the agency, okay, with the ability to capture the agency, with the resources to monitor the adjudicatory activities of the agency, would be in the know as to what the agency's enforcement priorities are and what it's doing. And other entities, perhaps smaller, less politically powerful entities, would not have that kind of privileged access, would not have that ability to expend the resources to monitor the adjudicatory output of the agency. And they're the ones who would suffer all of the notice injury in that world. This is a common lament in California. Under California law, there is no such thing as a guidance document. And the, and the standard lament here in California is that it's the big incumbent entities who hold all the cards because they alone have that agency access and that ability to monitor what the enforcement landscape looks like at any given moment. And to my mind, at least, this is something that a, that a Chicago schooler like Richard uh, shouldn't abide. So right, I'll leave off there. Uh, thank you, and I uh, look forward to the discussion. Can I answer? Please. Um, yeah, um, I disagree with, I think, just about everything that David said, but that should not come as a surprise, because if he's right, then I'm wrong. Um, but let me just start with the notice question. This is not an issue that first arises when you're dealing with guidances or statutes. Now, you go back to the ordinary situations, there are two kinds of notices at common law. One of them is you have a recordation statute, which gives notice to the world as to who owns a piece of property. And what it does is it allows people to go to the right person when it comes to buy something. 
The other kind of notice, as I say, anybody who walks in Central Park after 10 o'clock at night, I'm going to kill him. And it turns out you have notice. You can now mitigate the losses. And so, therefore, what you should do is to be thankful for me. Only we call that notice a threat. And it turns out that exactly the same kind of distinction arises with respect to the administrative process. So then the question is exactly what do we want to do in order to deal with this particular problem? Well, I think what you want to do is to allow somebody to be able to figure out which are the threats and which are not, and there'll be self-selection. Now, one of the things that David said, which I think is positively odd, is he says, you'll only find out about this stuff through enforcement actions. But earlier on in the speech, he also noted that many times when you have guidances, you give safe harbors or you give clarity. I have no idea what it means to enforce an action against somebody who takes advantage of a safe harbor, and I can't conceive of why an agency under these circumstances would somehow or other be reluctant to issue these kinds of warnings um, or guidances to people. Uh, once they issue them publicly, I think everybody is going to start to know them, and I just fail to understand why it is that they would ever be caught by this. So the mistake I think that David is making is he's trying to do, quote, empirical research, but it's the wrong research on the wrong question being done in the wrong way. I don't, frankly, give a damn about any of the questions that he asked in terms of the way in which you want to organize the system. If it turns out that the ratio between good and bad ones start to shift, then fine. We will have fewer suits when it's good and we'll have more than it's bad. I don't care why it turns out, whether it's a bad dose of drugs or something else, which one agency is worse than the other. Again, I look at the output, ask whether it's a threat or a promise in the sense that we've talked about before, and go after the bad ones and we don't go after the good ones under these circumstances. I don't care whether or not it turns out that the FDA is more prone to do this stuff than the EPA or vice versa. Or what happens is if you have the benefit of seeing the rule, you can handle this. The second point I want to make is that in doing with this guidance situation, there's something else which I think has to be remembered which changes the landscape. I take the very strong position that any question of law under Section 706 or any decent system of administrative law is to be reviewed de novo by a court. One of the nice things about having guidances is you don't get all the legal questions cluttered up with the factual disputes that take place in individual mistakes as to who said what to whom under this thing. Declaratory judgments are much cleaner in terms of the way in which they go, and therefore they're going to be much more general. And so to the extent that you now look at this system and say, I don't care whether you go through notice and comment or not, the last thing we're going to do is to say that going through notice and comment on any pure question of law is going to give you the slightest advantage over anything that happened otherwise. So at this particular point, unlike the Gerson proposal, you just don't get anything by doing that. And if you recall earlier, I think it was Mike who mentioned something about it, is one of the true horror shows that we have today is the recent Scalia opinion, where he announces that on all jurisdictional questions, we give Chevron deference, which is essentially a public announcement to the effect that foxes are allowed to determine the scope of the hen house and the various kinds of protections that it is to be given. This, this came up earlier, actually. This is a case called FCC versus Yeah, City the Arlington. FCC, the Arlington case, right? I mean, you agree it's a terrible decision, I hope. 
I but, do actually. Well, Richard. I mean, it's just it's unforgivable that somebody could be so dense about a fundamental question who prides himself on being an administrative lawyer. Uh, there's also another question coming up now, which again is extremely difficult in this new mortgage banking association case, Nichols, where the question is whether or not when you issue a quote-unquote inter interpretive rule, you can flip it over without a notice and comment hearing. Well, I mean, think of what they say an interpretive rule is. The first interpretive rule is you are not allowed to engage in a given kind of banking process. The second rule is you are now allowed to engage in it. When you switch 180 degrees, either from more to less enforcement, or in this case from less to more enforcement, awfully hard to call that as though it were simply an interpretive rule. I think the correct thing to do is not to say go through notice and comment. If it's an interpretation of the statute, you now treat it as a question of law, and you decide it as a question of law without any kind of deference at all, and you don't require notice and comment on the thing because it's simply a diversion from the kinds of issues that start to take place. So if you you get this particular kind of system right. I think, in effect, I don't see any advantage that big companies have over little companies if, in fact, the questions of law can be challenged by anybody, because working inside the agency is not going to give you anything, because everything's going to be determined on the basis of public document. And I also think if you're dealing with good rules, nobody's going to have an incentive to sue on these things. So public enforcement is not an issue when, in fact, there is a form of latent deregulation that is taking place inside an agency and so on. So what I think of what happens is, is that the old Landis model of administrative law is actually a pretty good model relative to the modern stuff that has grown up on these kinds of things and that the great damage of inverting Chevron and State Farm is that you have ridiculous things stated by, you know, Justice White say, well, you could have put this into effect without running any tests as to whether the thing worked, right? Remember with the seatbelt stuff. You know, that's criminal negligence if you actually do that or recommend it. I don't know what this man could possibly be thinking about the introduction of new projects. So you don't want to have something like that. And on the other hand, on the legal questions about whether an X is a Y or not, it seems to me that you can do this. So getting the system back in that area, I think, has no adverse consequences whatsoever. You judge agencies by their outputs. You don't judge them by their inputs. You don't care about the distribution of good and bad outcomes. So long as you can figure out after the fact which is which, you don't care how they get generated. So it's like the negligence rule. I don't care about inputs and strict liability. I care only about outputs. Did you pollute the other guy? Did you not? And if you get the right measure, you're not going to have any of these problems. Um, since there is not anyone on the queue, I am going to pose a question, uh, or at least pose a specific example and see what the two of, how the two of you react to it. It's, so it's an example, and I think you both referred to, which is the uh, Dear Colleague letter addressed to universities regarding sexual assault, uh, basically student sexual conduct on, on campus. That um, It's a guidance, it's, uh, if, if it's anything, but it's obviously not interpretive in that it imposes you know, very specific things that could not possibly have been divined uh, from the simple language of the statute that it purports to be uh, uh, to be enforcing, and I, I raise this example because David, you were asking, what are the mechanisms by which, you know, why is it that a, a universe uh, that a, an agency might abuse its power through uh, through guidance? So if this had gone through notice and comment rulemaking, there are any number of aggrieved parties 
uh, who are actually not universities. It could be a uh, it could be a, an alumni group. It could be a, a fraternity. It could be uh, any number of people who would be aggrieved within the terms of the APA who could have then challenged the legality of the uh, mm -hmm. of the uh, uh, regulation. But when it's done as guidance, uh, the threat is that a, a university will lose, lose its, its, its funding. Mm -hmm. um, no university is going to risk that, and so there will never be a challenge by a person with, by, the, by, the, by the entity against which it is enforced, and all the universities will simply comply without any real possibility of review. Isn't that the big problem? That's for David, right? The answer is yes. I was, sure, wonder, I I was wondering what Richard would say about that. No, you uh, weren't. So I, I think I think I agree with you, Michael. So maybe you know that's just a, you know that we could just pair that with PR sensitivity, right? If there's a massive funding, well, this isn't just uh, PR federal funding stream at stake. No, we don't care about it, PR. In, in, we in care about lots of money. Well, but but I think you know the way the reviewability doctrine works is that where the regulated entity faces something we could call a Hobson's choice. Uh, we want to permit pre-enforcement review. And so I'm not sure what exactly happened in the, you know, the Texas OCR version of the case, uh, but certainly someone came forward, a, a university came forward and did challenge it. Unfortunately, the court decided uh, that it was not ripe or final. I, I haven't even read the opinion. I only it's read terrible. it in, 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 in Richard's paper. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it seems as though that is an instance where the court should have uh, applying um, Supreme Court doctrine uh, should have concluded that some sort of pre-enforcement review could go forward. So again, maybe we're just adding a category beyond PR sensitivity. Maybe we're adding, you know, again, massive uh, federal funding streams at stake. But it seems like that this is the sort of thing that could be handled through uh, uh, a measured form of timing and, and, and availability, availability review doctrine. And I'm not sure why instances like the PR-sensitive uh, pharmaceutical industry or the federal funding-sensitive state university system. I'm not sure why that uh, should lead us to Richard's proposal, which is sweeping, which provides for automatic pre-enforcement review at any moment. And it just seems, in the paper itself, Richard, almost with a wave of the hand, says, well, there's going to be a selection mechanism here. Yep. Uh, and, 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 and we're only going to get judicious use of these pre-enforcement challenges. And I don't agree. There are, there are industries that do not labor under PR sensitivities, uh, that do not have federal funding streams at stake, and they will for certain make use of these pre-enforcement review uh, well, the, the, the liberal pre-enforcement review that Richard has in his proposal in a way that I think makes guidances too costly for agencies to deal in at all. And that as a result, we would lose the benefit, the clear notice-improving benefit of guidance documents. This is completely wrong. You bring one of these pre-enforcement things, why assume you're going to win? Now put it the other way. When you bring it, you're over-aggressive and you'll lose. At that point, you're dead. Because now, all of a sudden, whatever they've said has been authenticated in a general form. So there is a reason why there's a selective effect. Because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And in fact, you know, as a lawyer who's worked with universities and so forth, you don't say, hey, the government has passed something, let's sue. 
you ask yourself, do we have a chance of winning? Is it good? What are the consequences if we lose these sorts of things? Is there a way in which we could start to work some kind of bargain? So it may well be you say, look, you write a letter to the government, as they always allow you. We think that this thing is vulnerable. If you make this following change, we think it's not. Try that. And there's nothing about, you know, that happens in litigation. It can happen here. So I think what you do is you have this very strange model of what it looks like. Um, and it's just not going to way it's going to work. I mean, you take a rational litigation strategy, and there are many other decision choices that could be made along the way. So the selection effect is, in fact, powerful, just as it is in ordinary civil litigation. So now we have a cue. Michael Rappaport. Okay, this is a question for David. Um, I don't want, want it to be too technical a question, but um, I'm wondering if it's worse than you suggest. You, you suggest that we've got a, a, a doctrine of judicial review that allow pre-enforcement review that allows it in situations where we have public relations firms. But mm -hmm. if you're referring to Abbott Laboratories yeah. and things like that, that's mm -hmm. the pre-enforcement judicial review of rules. Mm -hmm. Right, so so presume, perhaps and likely would did not apply to to guidances, right? On the grounds that these aren't anything, right? These are hmm. these these are just well maybe they'll be enforced, maybe they won't be. Um, they're just you know a, a guidance. Yeah. So maybe I'm wrong that that you would have the same um, considerations at work as the pre-enforcement of judicial review of guidance mm -hmm. versus <coughs> legislative rules. But that's not my understanding. I mean, I think that doctrine does apply. I think you have to show that it, that the you have to make a showing then that the, the guidance, the guidance document is actually a final agency action. But it never so is. you have to show that it's a consummation right, but, but, but of a they, process. They that. These are our preliminary views. We're not sure. It's not supposed to be followed categorically. This is boilerplate in all these things. So we're always willing to give you the point oh oh one percent chance of a change. Let me give you a parallel. I would want to do a lot more doctrinal research on this question. I don't know that it's true that challenges to guidance documents are systematically turned back on on timing grounds. I'm not I'm not sure that's right. Uh, but but again, I don't I don't know. Uh, and maybe this just adds to the long list of things we need to know in order to make intelligent design decisions in this area. They're not all turned back, but it's harder. It's it's definitely harder because they don't necessarily constitute anything of substance like a legislative mm -hmm. rule does. Right. So I think it's too optimistic to say that the pre-enforcement line of uh, of Abbott Laboratories would apply. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering about if we go back. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, there's some nice things to think about the the 1970s DC Circuit, and some not so nice things about them. But one of the things they did is they systematically went through the judicial review and procedural area and thought about how to have increased supervision. And one of the things they had was a substantial impact test, mm -hmm. which was to say that if a policy statement or or, or anything of this sort. Um, had a substantial impact on the parties, then it would be a legislative rule. Mm -hmm. um, and I take it that it's not always clear what a substantial impact is, but but um, it would be things like public uh, threats, you know, anything that would induce the people to have mm -hmm. to follow these kind of considerations. Yeah, as I put it there in my presentation, it would impact circuit, primary conduct in some measurable way. But the D.C. Circuit said, oh, we're not going to enforce this any longer because this is inconsistent with Vermont Yankee. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can say that this is the existing doctrine. I actually think what we need to do is to get a statute <laughs> that's passed that, mm -hmm. that, or I mean, you could reverse the, 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 the cases, but you could get a statute that's passed that says um, 
you know, we, we're going to adopt the substantial impact test. But under the existing arrangements, I think in most situations you're, you're really out of luck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I make a comment? There, look, we're talking about cross-filterization. The relevant case in the takings area is Williamson Bank or whatever it is. Because that's a situation where they say, so long as we give you procedures by which you can open this thing up again, you can never get yourself into court. And so what happens is they just give you more and more options to do more and more things, and it does. Now, there's a clock running on these things. So take the FDA kind of cases. You got a drug which is a wasting asset under patent and so forth. They give you the right of judicial review. They'll give I mean, that's, you know, at the end, that in an individual case, they say, be my guest, sue me, take three years out of your patent life. That's not what you want. You want anybody to be able to go there independent of any particular application and say you cannot require the kinds of tests that you're asking for this because it's inconsistent with the basic statute. Otherwise, what happens is you're held hostage. And I might add, this is extremely important because when the FDA has the burden of proof, and it has to go forward, as in some of these cases. They are the most reckless, irresponsible, stupid on all the empirical stuff. I don't know if you've ever seen them with respect to the herbal supplements, the cases on that. They violate every single known principle of administrative law. Why? Because they want to get this thing done fast. And this case actually produced two judgments, one in the district court which says it's surely Chevron part one, we strike it down, and then the other one in the appellate court says it's clearly Chevron run, we uphold the darn thing so it's clear both ways. Um, you know, administrative law has some very many serious kinds of problems, and I think what you have to worry about these things is there's a threat advantage going on. You wait until the enforcement takes place. You're going to worry about, you know, the loss of huge amounts of money inside these universities. Harvard caved, and they were right to do so. The schools, for example, take the liberal cause on the Solomon Amendment. You know, they caved because they didn't want to lose their money. Now, my view about it is that was a ridiculous challenge to begin with. But that's not the issue. It's that when you can withhold benefits to an entire institution, not just the program that's in dispute, then in effect, the coercive effect uh, through this exercise of monopoly power is in fact subject to massive oversight and review in my judgment. So let's bring a few more people into the conversation. Chris uh, Demuth is next. I want to uh, make uh, three quick comments. on. Uh, on Richard's paper, it seems to me that there's a, there's a logical problem in the way you develop your argument uh, in saying that interpretive rules, but then guidance takes over, is the reaction to the increased costs of 553 informal rulemaking uh, because of the requirements of elaborate notice, yeah. elaborate mm -hmm. that. The, so the costs went up, and so guidances came in because it's the cheaper alternative. The difficulty with that is that the major examples you use are not guidances that are substituting for, you could, you could use notice and comment, but they are in the context of enforcement agencies. Your big examples, and the big examples no, everybody sure. uses, are the FDA and the Office of Civil Rights. Those are not 553 agencies. And the guidances that we discuss at those agencies, they're actually, they're more like, they're more like Jennifer's bailiwick. Uh, these are more like uh, civil uh, uh, plenary deferred prosecution agreements for everybody if they simply conform themselves to internal procedures at at yeah. uh, Can I just answer that? Uh, or whatever. So, it's, so let, me, let me just finish my points because they're very brief. 
Uh, so it seems to me that that is a difficulty. Uh, a difficulty with, uh, uh, with David's criticism <coughs> is, and I hear a lot of this in administrative law, it's this assumption that, that agencies are good. They're trying to promote environmental quality or good drugs. Every once in a while they make a mistake. So we have to kind of sort out the good from the bad. That's, I think that's a highly unrealistic view of, of what is happening in agencies. Large organizations, bureaucratic or corporate or whatever, their purpose is to maintain and enhance themselves. This is the truth of all organizations. So it's not true that they're going about self, uh, selflessly trying to help people to comply with their rules and then every once in a while they use them tactically. I've seen agencies from, from inside the government and from outside <coughs> uh, use guidances as substitutes for notice and comment and, uh, it, and, and in enforcement cases. And I believe, I, I don't have the empirics, but I do have this sense of how organizations behave and I think it's, I think it's consistent. Uh, and we have hundreds of years of history behind understanding how agencies behave. I think that guidances are used in two cases. In substitute for notice and comment, it is where uh, an agency has something that is extremely parochial and unworthy. Uh, something that it, it would just be embarrassing to do it through notice and comment rulemaking. I, 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 I'm trying to be brief, so I'm not going to use examples. Uh, but at the time that I was running OIRA, it wasn't that notice and comment was costly. It's that they knew if it came to the White House, we would swat it down hard because it was a really crappy idea and it was being done for some unworthy purpose and they accomplished it through guidances. Uh, when it is being done, as at the Office of Civil Rights, yeah. I've seen it done under the Clean Water Act. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, not to give notice, uh, it is to expand jurisdiction. It is to, to expand the jurisdiction of the agency. They're behaving the way agencies behave. They want, they believe in what they're doing. Uh, more jurisdiction, more power equals a better world. That is their view. The Clean Water Act people are very sincere about this. The OCR people are very sincere about this. Um, that view leads me to, to like Richard's proposal. Um, I would love it. I can't think of anything better than what David has described uh, as what the result of Richard's uh, proposal. Uh, I would like to have seen the Office of Civil Rights actually have to bring more cases to, you know, let's bring a case to abolish Princeton's wrestling team. You know, let's, let's get it out there. Let's have these big cases where they come in rather than achieve these things uh, silently uh, that, uh, you know, people can argue that, these, that it's a good idea to get rid of men's fencing, but it's not something you want to argue about out in the open. Uh, and so because of the, because it, it's, it's not empirical, I can't prove it, but every case of guidances that I see fits into one of these two uh, uh, situations, I would like them to have uh, to come out. I'm sorry, one last piece. Uh, I think that guidances actually began at the FDA uh, more in the way that David thinks about them. I think that they were trying to handle some complicated matters and give uh, uh, give good advice to the people in the industry. But, but because their guidances, because they operate in this shadow world, uh, they become these sort of backwaters. They have guidances at the FDA 
uh, that ha they haven't revised for decades. Uh, they're just, they're, they're the Slav, uh, um, they're, they're particularly kind of slow, phlegmatic uh, areas <coughs> of law. Uh, and I think that uh, simply because they operate without any uh, legal uh, friction uh, in the system, uh, they tend to be dangerous even if they start off with good intentions. Do you want to answer first, or should I? Uh, no, I will say one brief thing, and okay. then I'll turn it over to you, Richard. And I'll say is, several so, long things. So your, your basic assumption is, is kind of the empire-building government assumption, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, I, I try to resist those kinds of generalizations. I think there are plenty of public-spirited bureaucrats out there. I think if we actually, if we actually did the spade work, I, I, and that's kind of a, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a long-standing trope within political science. I, I understand that, but I just, you know, I think this, again, thinking about this, trying to think about how I would critique uh, Richard's paper suggested that we know shockingly little about what the actual terrain of guidance documents uh, looks like. It, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable to me. And I think if we ranged across a bunch of different agencies, some agencies that have um, you know, sort of hyper-normative uh, bailiwick, so Office of Civil Rights, uh, for instance, um, and then some more kind of run-of-the-mill, run you know, ordinary politics type agencies where there's arguably less normative content there. I think we would find like quite a mix of motivations. I think we would probably find lots of guidances that do really seem to reflect, uh, you know, agency bureaucrats uh, who are quite public-spirited and who believe that the best way to regulate is to give regulated entities plenty of fair notice so they can decide how to arrange their affairs, where to put their capital in anticipation of an enforcement campaign that the, that the agency is in fact going to launch. And I, you know, again, I try to resist broad generalizations, but I, you know, I, I don't think that we should paint with a broad brush. And, and I think that's precisely why maybe I have come to rest on something that I would call a, a tailored approach to all of this. And I'm looking for ways to tweak the system and to create a tailored approach to guidances that preserve some of the good things about them while maybe, um, you know, eroding some of the bad things about them. Whereas, whereas I think Richard, you know, has something that, you know, it's, 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 it's an all-in approach. It's a, it's a prophylactic rule with lots of margin of prophylaxis because anyone can file pre-enforcement review actions, and that strikes me as a, a sure way to ensure that there's little or no guidance no, within the system. I disagree. Look, Chris, I think you overstate your case in a way that hurts my case, right? Um, I agree with you if the proposition is there are many agencies that have the Niskanen imperative to expand stuff and so forth, and in fact, David kind of agreed that the Arlington Heights was sort of dumb in terms of that. But all we need to say is that this is not a rare abyss, it's a sufficiently serious problem, then you have to deal with it. And the self-selection mechanism, see the things come forward and then decide is the best. The second point that you make is absolutely right. But it is, again, orthogonal to the basic point. You take the civil rights argument, the one in Texas. The EEOC does not have the power to issue rules, right? So they do is they issue guidances. My view is that this starts to get you very squeamy, squishy kind of stuff because these guidances are de facto rules. And then there are other agencies, like I think the EPA, you know, it's running this huge, what is the waters of the United States, right? And that's a rule, and they issue guidances as well. So it happens in both contexts for the same kinds of reasons, and we're never quite sure which of these two things is, in fact, going to dominate in any particular case. Now, you mentioned Title IX, and, and this is a different story. 
uh, there was a case. It was called Cohen. And uh, what happened is uh, the way in which the EP, the, the title of the Civil Rights Office, construed this provision about sort of colorblind stuff and the ad hoc rules it created with respect to um, sex differences in sports, with the result that you shut down 600 wrestling teams and 300 male swimming teams, pay huge subsidies for women to play field hockey, and won't let men get private monies to support their swimming teams. This was challenged. And the First Circuit wrote an opinion which was dreadful, incompetent, stupid, irresponsible, and binding. That is, it said there's no affirmative action going on here. It's just neutral application. So what happens is you're sitting there. Now it's, they've gone through the enforcement action, right? This is no longer a debate about guidances or not guidances. There's not been a single frontal challenge to Title IX since that case came down because everybody knows it's going to be worse to challenge it than to capitulate. So what happens is this quiet diplomacy, you go to Wichita before the knaves in charge of the NCAA, and you hope that you can avoid something by making some kind of concession. And, and that's a different problem. That's a problem of stinky courts. Um, what they do is they don't understand what the statute is about. They're using the anti-discrimination laws as a massive club for cross-subsidies between agencies. I can't think of enough bad things to say about it. But I think it would be wrong to say that every stupid thing is attributable to the guidance stuff. Judicial incompetence has a very large thing to play. Like Justice you know, Stevens, he didn't even understand the scheme that he's upholding, right? I mean in Chevron. You know, but he, he kind of deference. I don't get it, but it's okay by me. I have one sentence. Yep. Yeah. Um, just to defend myself against the two of you, I don't sound too uh, crazy. I don't want to sound too crazy. Uh, I was simply making a proposition about the use of guidances where there are uh, good reasons to let the regulated community know the agency's sure. views and so forth. 553, we've got that. It's in the administrative procedure. I'm not arguing for the abolition of administrative agencies. I'm saying that when agencies choose to use guidance documents to go beneath the radar screen of 553, it is, it is frequently for unworthy purposes. But when you and now, they do not no. want the, well, they do not want the publicity. Uh, Jennifer Arlen. It doesn't explain the safe harbors. I think that uh, David makes a good point in pushing us to think hard about how these are used and also the cousin of no action letters. And while you might think of no actions as different because it's very specific, I spent a lot of time with SEC stuff and they're not so specific. I don't put I didn't write about no action yeah, letters. My view about them is, as ever, the selectivity generality thing, it could be bad either way. Right. But you have to read the letter. And so there is a very important role for some of these things. So I think it's particularly useful to target on which type of guidances we should be sending through the system. And in particular, the ones that look more like conditional waivers or more like, are you, in effect, creating a new legal duty. Now, that's hard to do since the agency's saying it isn't, but in some cases, it pretty clearly is. So I think there ought to be more focus on how do we tease out the bad type from the good type. I will say that I'm nervous about the proposal that we sort of let everyone sue. Um, one way to cabinet would be to say, let's take the worst case 
Um, I am concerned about the very same new procedures on sort of sexual assault that you are. I mean, it's new law, it's scary. Um, but if you just said, okay, educational institutions can sue, you know, the truth is, in some ways, this is great for them. You've just gotten rid of the due process clause. I mean, this isn't so bad, they're not gonna sue. So we say anyone can sue? I mean, anybody. So do we say anybody's only boys, because that's who's disproportionately hurt, or do we say really anyone can sue? Well, then you have to worry about an anyone can sue for the same reason we have standing doctrine, which is- Same reason you have standing doctrine. I don't have standing doctrine. But I don't agree with that standing doctrine. All right, anyway, you do have to worry that a really smart group of people would get the agency to send the guidance and then send a strategic suit through and get a nice court ruling early on in the process saying it's all fine because they weren't genuinely litigating to challenge the guidance. No, no, look. You know, you, you do have to worry about strategic litigation by people who don't have good faith. And that's the answer to that is what is always the answer to that. If this is a structural challenge on facial validity, intervention by third parties is always appropriate and then they will organize themselves. So if it turns out that A sues B and the IJ thinks it's terrible, they knock on the door. Every time you actually look at these cases and you're trying to get the third party interveners, what typically happens is they are kept out. I mean, one of the days I wanted to strangle Bert Newborn back in 1985 is that the city entered into a deal with um, the ACLU to make sure that it was unconstitutional uh, to allow public monies to be used to help children who were in the orphanages run by Catholic charities. And so I asked them, I said, uh, did the Catholic charities participate in this lawsuit? And they said no. And I said, why not? They said, no standing, discretionary intervention, we don't have to do it. That's the scandal. So if you're going to do this thing, you have to get the intervention rules. This is plain old 18th century English equity, understood in a modern way, solves that particular problem. Otherwise, it's a disgrace. Collusive litigation can happen, and if it's going to be global in its impact, it means that you can't pull up the door the moment the complaint is filed, I think. Jesus. I think there is an important issue over here that we have not discussed enough which is the conflict of interest within the organizations that are subject to the guidance. So for instance, David was mentioning the pharmaceutical companies are very public relations sensitive. Well, think about the universities. My dean has a totally different objective function than me personally. As Jennifer was mentioning before, the sexual harassment guidelines come, the dean says, great, in that way, I can get rid of my professors without any problem, I look great, I don't have to have any problem. The real issue is for me, because now what do I do if I, you know, God <laughs> prevents that from ever happening, someone accuses me. I'm not going to be subject to due process. So what type of legal remedy do I have now? So I think that any type of design of a process or mechanism that tries to control this, uh, this, uh, this type of uh, guidances needs to take account from the beginning that within the organization subjects to them, there is going to be people with many different objectives and that, the, that conflict of interest within the organization is, I think, in a lot of situations of first order consideration. Yes, and also, by the way, under the current system, it's absolutely imperative that anybody charged can, in fact, attack the due process validity of the system. And I think you agree with that, right? 
So somebody gets prosecuted under the Harvard Rules Against Harvard, that's state action, given who dictated it. And you could then say, well, there's notice, fair hearing, bias, and all the rest of that stuff. Hopefully you can win this kind of thing. The difficulty is if you have to wait. Except, except that because it's only guidance, Harvard didn't do it because they were required no, to I mean, do I'm it willing, as a I technical legal matter. I mean, I might well argue that, but there are going to be plenty of courts who are going to be formal about this and say, since it's only guidance, Harvard did it on their own. Harvard's a private university, so... No, um, no there's a settlement agreement. I, I don't like it. No, but there's an Richard agreement between them and the a, government. This is a further bit of mischief yeah. about having pieces of paper that, in fact, have the force of law, but don't form, but are not tr formally treated. By the as way, law. but the Harvard thing actually <clears throat> was resolved by an agreement between the government and Harvard, a contract, and we agree mm -hmm. to do this, and you agree to do that. I mean, if that's not state action when they explicitly mm -hmm. impose it by agreement, yeah. it's there. So the guidance, in effect, what happens is it now levers the contract. The contract is then binding on the institution, but cannot mm -hmm. be treated as state action when enforced by the government. Michael. I don't think, I mean, and I agree with you, the ambiguity true. is true before the, with the agreement, but after the agreement, it can't be right. Uh, Ed Rubin is the next. This point, which is maybe Harvard was legal, but they're not all legal. We understand that. I agree with that. Michael's absolutely right about the rest of it. It's just, I'm just talking about uh, the Harvard case. Ed, Ed Rubin. So, um, one thing, uh, uh, Richard, you gave us uh, some historical background. My understanding is that. Um, uh, guidance, it's not an English word. I mean, there's no noun, guidance. It's a translation of a Japanese term. Now in Japan, but it's a mistranslation. In Japan, uh, a guidance is a statutory um, uh, provision. It's a statutory procedure, and it's intermediate between a rule and advice. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that they've, to some extent, taken some of the pressure off the uh, rulemaking by creating an intermediate category. And it might, be one of the, it might pick up on some of the specific concerns that uh, David was mentioning. Um, but uh, to uh, then uh, take, and, and it's of course subject to judicial review if you violate the law, that is to say if you don't follow the uh, uh, statutory procedures. But then if you um, it, uh, impose this um, sort of blanket uh, judicial review on everything that could be called guidance, essentially you're moving down to a point where you're trying to uh, uh, regulate what is in fact a uh, very often advantageous give and take between sophisticated regulated parties and an agency they know pretty well and which will often produce, and I think I would agree with David here, which will often produce uh, advantages for the flexibility and the awareness of the regulated process. I agree with that. I didn't say that you have to sue. I'm just saying you can sue. What's going to happen is the nature of those negotiations will differ radically depending upon whether you think you have a remedy or not. If you don't have a remedy, they're going to have a lot more leverage on you. I think what Ed's concerned about is other parties suing to upset the apple cart because the, the, the agreement he's talking about might well no, uh, no, no. upset somebody else. Well, I think what happens is this, again, is the problem of ex parte hearings, which is serious. 
I mean, and we all know that. Somebody goes into the agency and says, this is my thing, this is what you have to do. Somebody else comes in and does it ex parte and so forth. I think one of the reasons why you want to get it to put it on paper is at that point the ex parte stuff drops out and you have to be able to defend the thing on the face of the record. I mean, if it's a corrupt process, it's going to show up in the outcome. If it's not a corrupt process, it won't show up in the outcome. So wait to outcomes and don't try and fine-tune the process. It's too complicated, too varied. The very thing that David gave, you cannot have a rule which says, oh, sensitive companies get one treatment, non-sensitive companies get the other treatment. Even in the pharmaceutical industry, if you're selling to consumer goods, you've got a lot more worry about that than if you're like Abbott and selling to the trade, you know, where you sell anesthetics to physicians instead of selling uh, hay fever medicine to anybody else. All these industries are tremendously varied inside of it, and you can't let the rule depend upon your perception of how the industry is done. That's why the outputs dominate the inputs, I think. I don't think the rule will end up being industry-wide, by the way. I think, I don't, I think, I don't, I think reviewability is a case-by-case -case basis, and it takes well, into account both the industry and what the particular you know, industry a action nightmare. is in that case. So we have two more people on the queue, and then we're going to have to put an end. Uh, so Larry Kogan. The, the factual scenario you're positing with respect to the guidance, does the statute say that the agency has the authority to promulgate a form of rulemaking and that rulemaking form can include guidance? Or does the statute explicitly state that the agency shall provide guidance? The, almost no statute uses the term guidance in it. That's because one. they're not written in Japanese and it's a Japanese <laughs> word. Actually, I can name one statute that does. What it's is it? The Information Quality Act. It actually uses the word guidance. If Congress directs OMB to issue that guidance. Well then, well, then I think what happens is there's no question about the statutory validity. Right. The only question is whether or not the substantive scope of the statute is exceeded by the guidance. Now, now the issues. guidance was issued in this particular case pursuant to notice and comment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Daniel Richmond. Particularly, Richard needs to give more attention to the, the ways in which agencies speak, and and obviously to the extent you shut them down and guidance, they may move to notice and comment rulemaking, and, and to some extent they might. They'll also move to speeches, testimony. I know. And you know, one of the things that we were talking at lunch with John Yu is, is how OIRA is getting involved in in reviewing. Yeah, you were telling us this is in reviewing um, testimony to Congress for every agency. I mean, uh, we, we did that back in 35 years ago. I, then it was new to me, not new to you. Oh, no, but but it, it's sort of a reminder that there are a whole, there's a continuum of, of ways in which agencies can communicate. And the only way I'll end this is say, speaking as someone who's coming from the criminal world, this idea that we're going to try and drive, drive up, dry up guidance. In, in a world where I come from where for, for generations people have been pleading for, for any words from on high about what, what might be coming down the pike. Um, it's just a reminder that I think you might want to follow David. I, I agree with that. I've said it a thousand times. My view is that there'll be a selection effect. If you're pining for the guidance and you get it, so you're not going to sue. If it turns out that the guidance is an extension beyond the scope of the statute, you will. Take the Texas case. You know, the rule in Texas has always been 
um, government agencies will not hire people for criminal you're, records. You're forgetting if you sue in, in, the, in the criminal space, then you're opening yourself up to civil discovery with a possible prosecution down the road. Not a great idea. Well, no, but that's why you want facial challenges. A facial challenge of God. Well, I mean, you, when, you look, at, look at the guidance in the Texas case. They're perfectly clear. What you have to do is every time you want to protect somebody who has a criminal record, you have to make facts and circumstances determination. There are thousands state agencies that are going to be required to do that. I think before you say, look, oh, what we're going to do is have somebody bring an enforcement action, then you bring it, then you find out that the legislation is valid. Now they've got three years to go after everybody and every other agency of the state which in fact kept to its per se rule. That's not a tenable situation. Well, <clears throat> this uh, issue of guidance obviously has you know, so many different facets to it. Um, but our time is up. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.